You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages on life that Stephen Olford presented at Moody Keswick Bible Conference, 1984. Stephen Olford was a pastor, author, international evangelist, and a pioneer Christian broadcaster with his TV program, Encounter. Now, here is Stephen Olford on Today in the Word radio. All right, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And our homework this week is just reading and rereading chapters 5, 6, and 7. Though we're going to stay very much in chapter 6. And for our reading this morning, I want you to turn to chapter 6 and verse 19. And although you may have the Living Bible or the NIV or some other translation, or possibly even the King James, I've chosen short readings for each occasion. And I think it would be good if we read them together so we just sort of coordinate our thinking, orientate our thinking to what I'm going to talk about. Verse 19 through 24. Verse 19 through 24. Let's read together. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be healthy, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness! No man can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money as I have in the margin. Well, now, our theme then for these days is freedom laws for kingdom life. And before we come to the first subheading, let me just introduce this wonderful gospel of Matthew. Matthew presents our Lord as his majesty, the king. And for this reason, many students of the word of God believe that Matthew is essentially Jewish and only for Jews. Now, it's perfectly true that the Lord Jesus was the king of the Jews. In fact, that superscription was over the cross, and he was known as the king of the Jews. Where is he that is born king of the Jews, asked the Magi. But we can't leave that there. The Lord Jesus is not just king of the Jews. He's king of the church. For you remember when the Lord Jesus asked the disciples who he was, and they replied by announcing what others were saying about him. He then said, who do you say that I am? And Peter came out with that majestic confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as you all know, the word Christ is Messiah, the anointed one, and it has roots in the Old Testament where Jesus 
is the anointed prophet and priest and king. And right after that great confession, where Peter announced that Jesus was the anointed prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus said, upon this rock, not rock Peter, but rock truth, the truth that Peter had given expression to, thou art the Christ, the anointed prophet, priest, and king, son of the living God, upon this truth I will build what? My church. And the gate of hell, the gates of hell, shall not prevail against her. So the Lord Jesus is essentially the king of the church. And from this point of view, Dr. Myron Augsburger, that great Mennonite scholar, has written convincingly a commentary on Matthew called Jesus people. That Matthew is not so much for Jewish people, that's true, but Jesus people, so that you and I are kingdom people. And if we're kingdom people, then we come under, listen, the standards of that kingdom. The standards of that kingdom. And this is where many, many Christians shrink back and say, oh no, Matthew is not for us. The Sermon of the Mount is not for us. Listen, there was no greater heresy ever taught. There is nothing in the Sermon of the Mount that isn't included in the epistles. W.E. Vine and Dr. Hogg of Britain have written a wonderful book to show there is absolutely nothing in the Sermon on the Mount that isn't included in the epistles at one point or another. So if you say the Sermon on the Mount doesn't apply to us today, then let me tell you something, nor do the epistles. And it's a subtle way of retreating from one of the most devastating and yet, let me say, profitable teachings of the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And I wish the church would get back to studying what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And these standards apply to us today. But somebody says, ah, wait, we're not under law. We know that. We're not under the sentence of the law. We're under grace. But we're under the standards of the law. For let me read to you, Paul makes this abundantly clear when he writes, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin or as a sin offering, condemned sin in the flesh. Why? That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, these words may sound very strange in an hour of relativism and antinomianism, which means loose living, loose morals, but God has ordained these standards. For too long, the Christian church has lived on the basis of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. And we need to get back to the standards of morality and holy living, the laws of the kingdom, freedom laws for kingdom life. Well, that's our introduction. And I've just chosen, because we only have five mornings, five tremendous things, I think, that are burning issues today. If I were to ask you, beloved, 
What is your priority in life? What is your supreme priority in life? I wonder what your answer would be here this morning. We could say in a kind of nebulous way, where is Jesus? But yes, in what respect? And so I want us to do a study with the verses we have just read together. And I want to give you the outline, first of all, so you won't lose me. So you won't lose me. You'll follow me right the way along. I want to give you the railway lines on which you can move right along, sweetly and succinctly, right through to the end of the message. I want to give you three laws this morning based upon life's priority. One, seek the right passion in life. Two, see the right vision in life. And three, serve the right mission in life. Let me say them again. One, see, seek, seek the right passion in life. Two, see the right vision in life. And three, serve the right mission in life. Now, if you take those seriously and just bring them to the verses we've read together, you'll see that that just splits up that passage for you. Let's look at the first one. First law, then, is seek the right passion in life. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And here's the key verse. For where your treasure is, there will your passion, there will your heart be also. You see, a man's passion is his heart's treasure. The treasure may not be money or material things, but it will identify itself by that which he most eagerly seeks and what he most dreadfully shrinks from losing. And if I were to pause right now and say, what do you dread from losing in your life? What do you dread right now from losing in your life? You pause a moment. That's your passion. That's your passion. What brings happiness? What brings satisfaction? What brings a sense of fulfillment in your life? Whatever that is, that's your passion. Now, to attain or acquire this treasure constitutes life's priority. A person can be motivated by an earthly-mindedness for this passion or a heavenly-mindedness for this passion. And that's what the Lord Jesus deals with here. Look at the first one, the earthly-minded passion. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on the earth where moth and rust destroys and where thieves break in and steal. Now, the sequence of this teaching is very remarkable, for cast your eye back to the verses that precede this. And you'll notice from chapter 6, verse 1 on, the Lord Jesus is talking about prayer. Talking about prayer. In the first 18 verses, we're conducted into the Holy of Holies to meet with God in prayer. And we encounter the one who reads the secrets of our hearts, those hidden motives of our lives. And when we come to verse 19 onwards, suddenly we're confronted with things. We've been in prayer. Our hearts have been searched. 
And in verse 19, there's suddenly a transition to things. And this change of climate immediately tests the degree of either our earthly mindedness or our heavenly mindedness. So often we find ourselves concerned with things. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi and he pointed his finger at saints at Philippi who minded what? Earthly things. If the place of communion with God doesn't deal with your self-life, then the obvious result is we lay up for ourselves treasures on the earth. Paul was so concerned about this with his young son in the faith, this successor to him, Timothy by name, that he wrote to him and said, Timothy, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And he wasn't writing to a pastor who was in business or a layman who was in professional life. He was writing to a pastor in charge of a church. And I tell preachers that all the time. What people don't realize is that the mere acquisition of material things does not necessarily bring satisfaction. And certainly not approbation hereafter. So, you see, these things are vulnerable if we're earthly minded. Jesus said, don't you understand that beautiful clothes like those coveted by Gehazi, two kings, and Achan, Joshua 7, can be destroyed by moths? Don't you realize that a storehouse of gold and grain can be invaded by rats and mice and worms? Don't you realize that precious jewels that we sometimes covet can be burgled? Jesus warned about that 2,000 years ago, and yet we lay up treasures for ourselves. That's earthly-mindedness. That's earthly-mindedness. And I want to say it, and I want to say it in love. We live in a country that stimulates that all the time because there's probably no more materialistic country under God as this beloved land. And perhaps that's our greatest, our greatest danger, our greatest danger. Money talks. Money talks. And it invades our own lives. It invades our own lives. Now, don't mistake me. The Bible is very balanced. There's nothing wrong with money or riches in and of themselves. They're perfectly neutral. But it seems that the warnings of Scripture are against two things. One, the love of money. And secondly, the trust in uncertain riches. Both mentioned in Paul's letters to Timothy. Because we do need money. We need money for normal living. We need money for the support of our loved ones. Any man who doesn't support the needs of his loved ones has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. 
We need money for the support of God's work. As a matter of fact, Paul is so clear about this. He says, God is ordained. Actually, the Greek is, God is commanded that those who live by the gospel should also be paid for the gospel. So, there's nothing wrong in and of itself except the earthly-mindedness that lays up treasures for ourselves. But the other side of the coin is just as important, the heavenly-minded passion. That's the earthly-minded passion. Here is the heavenly-minded passion. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break through or steal. Now, treasures in heaven was a very favorite expression in Jewish vocabulary and thinking. And they always identified that with a life of kindness and piety and self-sacrifice. They believed that the quality of life they lived down here would be rewarded up there. And then the Lord Jesus came and taught them the real truth about this. And it's interesting, if you notice the whole context here, that this laying up of treasure in heaven is a reward that God gives. A reward that God gives. And he mentions three of them right here in context. Number one, there is the reward for giving. There is the reward for giving. Look at verses three and four. The reward for giving. When you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. It is the disciplined and unostentatious giving done in the conscious presence of God which lays up treasure in heaven. Lord Jesus told a remarkable parable on one occasion and finished with these words, very strange words, make friends for yourselves of unrighteous money that when you fail, they may receive you into their holy habitations. You see, what does that mean? What the Lord Jesus is saying, what you, what you spend, what you spend in the interest of the Father, is going to give you a wonderful welcome when you get to heaven. Harold Wildish, who's now in heaven, who's one of my favorite preachers, a man who did more to help me in preaching possibly than anyone else, told this story once, which beautifully illustrates that parable. He told of a very, very wealthy businessman in London who gave a gift for the distribution of Bibles to a tribe in Africa where the language had just been put into print and the Bibles translated. And as a result of the coming of those Bibles, there was a tremendous revival. Almost an entire tribe came to Christ. Shortly after that, because of their faith, there was persecution, in fact, a massacre. And most of the tribe were slain. Just about that time, the British benefactor, who gave all this money, died. And a great service of witness and celebration was held in Africa. And the missionary who preached the sermon said something like this. You know, with sanctified imagination, I can look right through into the portals of heaven and I can see a wonderful event taking place. Our brother so-and-so stands there and around him hundreds of Africans who have been saved 
through the distribution of the Bibles that he paid for, welcoming him into heaven. And their song is, by the grace of God, we're here because of you. Because of the grace of God, we're here because of you. That's what Jesus is talking about. Treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven. The reward for giving. But there is a reward for praying. Will you notice that in verse 6? When you pray, go into your room, and when you shut the door, pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. Once again, that's laying up treasures in heaven. The Christian who takes time to pray, even though it's the most unspectacular ministry ever given to the church, and yet the most powerful ministry, the little souls who shut their doors, and I thank God for women especially to whom this ministry has been given, shut their doors and quietly wait on God. You know, are laying up treasures in heaven like you don't know how. Do you know what that word, closet, closet in your King James Version is in the Greek? Storehouse. Storehouse. It's the Greek word for storehouse. It's the Greek for storehouse. And the picture is simply this. As you shut that door and you pray, God takes from that storehouse on earth and lays it up in heaven as treasures in heaven. Isn't that beautiful? I saw this lovely story the other day. One of the great missionaries of all time, of course, was William Carey. And he once re was reproached by his friends for spending so much time in prayer that he neglected his business. And he replied, and I quote, that supplication, thanksgiving, and intercession are much more important in my life than anything else, for that's laying up treasure in heaven. Prayer is my real business, he said. Cobbling, cobbling shoes is a sideline. It just helps me to pay expenses. The Lord honored Carey's vigorous faith, for he became, you remember, the renowned missionary, mightily used in Burma, the East, East Indies, and in India. And I want to tell you, he laid up treasures in heaven. The third illustration the Lord Jesus gives us here is the reward for fasting, the, re the reward for giving, the reward for praying, the reward for fasting. Isn't it interesting that he used those three for laying up treasure in heaven? Here is the reward for fasting. When you fast, do not appear to men as you're fasting, but to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Here once more is the way of laying up treasures in heaven. What is fasting? Fasting is not just abstinence from food. Even the cultists do that, atheists do that, and they're not laying up treasure in heaven. The believer who sacrifices, listen carefully, social, physical, material benefits, even sacrifices time in order to give himself wholly to God. Holy to God. Withholds himself from many things that are perfectly legitimate. In fact, they may have total endorsement from Scripture but you're setting them aside to give yourself more completely to him, is laying up treasures in heaven. There are a lot of folk here from New England 
the land that was absolutely swept by revival during the mighty preaching of Jonathan Edwards. And I picked this up the other day. For three days, Jonathan Edwards had not eaten a mouthful of food. For three nights, he had not closed his eyes in sleep. Over and over again, he had been saying to God, give me New England, give me New England. When he rose from his knees and made his way into the pulpit, he looked as if he had been gazing straight into the face of God. Before he opened his lips to speak, conviction fell upon the audience. The rest is history. Revival spread throughout New England, and rich treasures were laid up in heaven. The reward for giving, the reward for praying, the reward for fasting. It's well to ask then, what is the passion in your life? Is it earthly minded or is it heavenly minded? Seek the right passion in your life. That's the way to life's priority. Quickly turn to the next one. See the right vision in your life. See the right vision in your life. Look at that. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Verses 20 and 23. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now the very real sense in which Vision controls passion. You know that verse in Lamentations 3.21? Mine eye affecteth mine heart. Mine eye affecteth mine heart. It's what you see and how you see that determine a true vision in life. And Jesus gives us here two things to think about. He speaks, first of all, about the focused vision. Notice the focused vision. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. When vision is focused, the rays of light converge on the retina of the eye in such a manner as to flood as the whole body, as it were, with light. The whole personality of light. And herein is a parable. When our inward eyes, the eyes of our heart, so to speak, are focused on the Lord Jesus, we can't walk in darkness. We can't walk in darkness. God is light and him is no darkness of all. So when we say that we walk in the light, don't obey him. We lie. The truth isn't in us. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, vertically and horizontally, and the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, goes on cleansing from all sin. Do you know, if you were to ask me what is the true, the true test and barometer of Christian holiness, fruitfulness, and restfulness, I would just say walking in the light. How many of you have heard of that wonderful man of God called Bishop Fester Cavendry? probably the greatest authority on revival in Africa and around the world, a great preacher, a man who was involved in the Rwanda revival. I asked him many, many times, 
Chester, what is the secret of that ongoing revival in Uganda and Rwanda? In spite of all the persecution, in spite of hundreds of Christians being slain for their faith, what is the secret? He says, walking in the light. He says, we have a little saying. If I see a cloud on my brother's face, my sister's face, when I greet her, when I greet him in the morning, and there's a cloud, I say, brother, are you walking in the light? I said, what's the opposite of not walking in the light? Oh, he said, simple. We Africans understand that. It's being in the bushes. <laughs> and you know, that's not so unscriptural. What happened to Adam and Eve when they ceased to walk in the light? They hid in the bushes. They hid in the bushes. The focused vision, nothing between. I like to put it this way. Walking in the light under an unclouded heaven with the ungrieved, unquenched Holy Spirit filling our lives. The focused vision. It was to believers who were being lured away from their first love that the Hebrew writer said, looking off unto Jesus. An unusual word. In technological terms, it's zooming in on Jesus. It's focusing in on Jesus. The very thought of that gave me these Precious little words I want to share with you. Look to Jesus, light of lights. Fix your eyes with focused gaze. He'll eclipse all other sights and direct you all your days. But on the other hand, beloved, there's the faulty vision. Notice that, the faulty vision. If your eye is bad, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I specialists talk about astigmatism, a condition which, which somehow gives you kind of faulty vision, faulty vision, cockeyed vision, doubled vision, cross-eyed vision. And Jesus speaks about this and says, listen, make sure that your vision is focused and not faulty. If you're focused on the Lord Jesus with clear vision, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is, as the Greek has it, diseased, faulty, fractured, and you don't see him clearly, you'll walk in darkness. You'll walk in darkness. What then is priority for my life? Not only to seek the right passion. For where my treasure is, that's where my heart is. But to seek and see the right vision. The right vision. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. John was converted in an open-air meeting. He was a rascal. Ruined his home. His children hated him. His wife feared him. He was a drunkard. But that night, he was converted on the spot. He joined a, joined a local Baptist church, and in no time, he had drawn around him, like D.L. Moody did, the biggest, biggest class of rascals in that church 
and led them one after another to Christ so that he had the most fantastic ministry in that church. He grew in the Lord with such joy and power and blessing that he was a testimony to the entire church. One night there was a church meeting. The pastor was trying to moderate a church meeting that was discussing a highly emotional issue. And they were at one another's throats. Deacons were almost fighting. Have you ever been in a meeting like that? I mean, tempers were flaring, exaggerated language was being used, and the pastor lost total control. Suddenly, John stood up right in the middle of that congregation and with quiet, chosen words calmed the whole situation. Everybody was ashamed, so ashamed, that the whole church meeting turned into a prayer meeting. Reconciliations were made. Before that meeting was over, one brother got up and he said, Brother John, you're only a young Christian. You have the biggest Bible class in our church. You haven't been on the way as long as we have. What is the secret of your life? What is the secret of your life? He said, very simple. He said, when I was unconverted, the way I earned the money to drink and destroy my home was dog racing. And I used to take my dogs every morning for walks. And if they were going to win, I knew they had to eat clean food and they had to be well exercised and well groomed. But he said, dogs are dogs and their nature is to nose out all kinds of things. And as I walked with my dogs very often, down would go their noses, then they would dig out of garbage some filthy, stinking bones and begin to scrap over them. And he said, there was only one way I could deal with this. I knew them and they knew me and I knew their names and I would call their names and I would say, now then, you and you, eyes on me, eyes on me. And I'd start to run. And they'd follow me with their eyes on me and leave all the bones behind. He said, the trouble with you is that you're scrapping over dirty, stinking bones and your eyes aren't on Jesus. Focused vision. Focused vision. Not faulty vision, focused vision. Quickly, our last one, which is tremendously important, because it's probably the strongest word in all of the New Testament on Christ is master. Remember the first one was seek the right passion in life. Secondly, see the right vision in life. Thirdly, serve the right mission in life. That's the closing verse, verse 24. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. One of our great scholars today is a man called Dr. C.E. Colton, wonderful evangelical exegete. He says, this is a dogmatic declaration of a principle. There is no equivocation or uncertainty in the tone of Jesus' voice. He states plainly that the premise is this, there cannot be two masters in a man's life. Jesus did not say that you should not serve God in money. It isn't a matter of propriety. It's a matter of possibility. It is impossible for anyone to have two masters in his life. Many have tried to maintain allegiance to two masters, but no one has ever yet accomplished the feat. 
It'll never be done. By the very nature of the case, it is impossible. To be master means to have supreme and complete control. If one master has complete control, how can another master have part of that control? They're mutually exclusive. There is only one throne within the heart of man. The moment the world is enthroned, Christ is dethroned. When Christ is enthroned, the world is dethroned. There cannot be divided allegiance. If the world has any claim or dominion, then Christ is not master of that life, period. Life's priority, one passion, one vision, one mission to serve my master. Now, Jesus taught three things here that we want to touch on just in a sentence or two. First of all, the Lord Jesus deserves our loving service, our loving service, our loving service. Let me underline that. He will hate the one and love the other, verse 24. The force of the Lord's claim upon us is more apparent in the Greek than in the English. First, the word serve doesn't signify a kind of occasional obedience. No way. It's rather bond service. In this sense, no one can serve two masters. Jesus used two words that are translated other here in the English. In the English, it's other. In the Greek, it's two words. One means, one means Another of the same kind. The other word means another of a different sort. It is evident, therefore, that no one can be devoted to two different and opposing masters. Our hate is for the one, that's Satan, and everything he represents. Our love is for the other, is Jesus. Jesus. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of earth I reside. Loving service. Loving service. But secondly, notice the Lord Jesus deserves our loyal service. Notice what it says in verse 24 again. He will hold to the one and despise the other. Do you know what the verb to hold means there? The verb to hold means to line up face to face with one man. Do you know the test of absolute loyalty? Do you know the test of absolute loyalty? The ability to look into your friend's face, your master's face, with both eyes. You don't drop your eyes because there's nothing to hide. Absolute loyalty. Absolute loyalty. And that's a rare commodity today, a rare commodity. We're afraid to hold to Christ and despise all other rivals. And finally, will you notice, and this is tremendous, the Lord Jesus deserves not only our loving service and loyal service, but lasting service. No one can serve two masters. Same text. But the Greek for serve is literally to be a slave to, as pointed out. On the other hand, the word for master denotes total ownership. And of course, when Jesus spoke those words, it was slavery time in Israel. The Romans had their slaves, and a slave wasn't even a person. He had no personality. He hadn't even a name. He was a thing. 
He didn't even own position, possessions. He had no time. He had no rights. This is the day when we're saying, but my rights, my rights, my rights. Did you know something, beloved? No Christian has any rights. That's devastating, but that's what the Bible says. God, who was God, a very God, and thought it not robbery to be on equality with his father, God came down and said, I have no rights. You say, well, then where does a Christian stand? I'll tell you, his rights are my rights. And my rights are his rights. And I don't say, these are my rights. No, I say, Lord, what are your rights? Whatever your rights are, they're my rights. And usually, his rights cut clean through our rights. Because, you know, our rights always are pinned to an upright letter called I. Happens to be the center letter of the word S-I-N, sin, I. But when the cross cuts across that I, I'm crucified, and it's not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. What's our theme this morning? Life's priority. What is it? The right passion. Where's your treasure this morning? Is it earthly-minded or heavenly-minded? The right priority. Seek the right passion. What's life's priority? The right vision. Not the faulty, fractured, diseased vision, but the focused vision. Seek the right vision and see the right vision. What's life's priority? The right mission. What is that right mission? Serving Jesus. Serve that mission. Lovingly. Loyally. Lastingly. Amen? Those are standards of the kingdom. Those are standards of the kingdom. Freedom laws for kingdom life. I want to close by giving you this. I wrote it after I prepared this message. Our study has shown that life's priority is Christ. Our passion in life is to seek him. Our vision in life is to see him. And our mission in life is to serve him. These are freedom laws for kingdom life. Only remains for me to ask you, what is your life's priority in Christ? Won't you pray these words? Lord, I seek no earthly pleasure in a world to which I've died. For I found in you my treasure, and my soul is satisfied. Give me then the focused vision of yourself, the Holy One, and preserve me from defection, deflection, till my race on earth is won. As I run with expectation for the prize held out for me, fill me, Lord, with pure devotion. Set my soul at liberty. I affirm, Lord, you're my passion. You're my life's.
priority. Clear my vision, speed my mission, now until eternity. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of a five-part series of messages Stephen Olford presented at Moody Keswick Bible Conference 1984. Stephen Olford was a pastor, author, international evangelist, and a pioneer Christian broadcaster with his TV program, Encounter. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.